Think back to when you were a new parent, a first-time employee, a freshman college student, or just starting a new grade for the first time. Who do you want help from if you need help? Someone else who just had their first baby? Someone else who just got hired at the company at the same time as you? Someone else who's new to the school as well? Probably not, right? You want someone who's been where you were, but is further along than you. Someone who knows what it's like to be where you're at, but who has successfully gone through it. Maybe they've graduated, maybe their kids are grown, you know, those sorts of things. You want someone who can relate, but who isn't as naive or uncertain or inexperienced as you are. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but in this passage, Jesus is the one who has gone before us specifically in terms of his dealing with sin. And so all of these admonitions in this passage are centered around that idea, Jesus has gone before you, he has succeeded, he can help you. Or, to sum it up briefly, hold fast in Jesus to enter God's rest. What's the first reason? Because Jesus was faithful. We didn't read these verses together, so let me read them for you. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So, hold fast in Jesus to enter God's rest, because Jesus himself was faithful. There is a description of Jesus here as the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Those ideas are going to come up later as we continue going through the passage. But the parallel that's being shown here is Moses was faithful as a leader over the people God gave to him. Jesus was faithful as a leader over the people that God has given to him. But Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses was serving God. Jesus is God. Moses was appointed to lead the people of Israel. Jesus is appointed to lead all of God's people. Moses was faithful in his house. Christ is a son over his house. Which raises this question for us. Whose house are you a part of? Because that's really the starting point. Because all of this, the rest of this, about holding fast and persevering in faith and not falling away and not being hardened and not being characterized by unbelief only makes sense in the context of someone who has been joined with Christ. If you've never been joined with Christ in the first place, you can't fall away from Him. If you've never professed belief in Christ, you can't really express unbelief in the way of someone who has heard the Word and then turned away from it. And so the first question from this passage is, whose house are you a part of? Not the house of Moses, at least for most of us, we're not Israelites. But are we of Jesus' house? Well, what's the test? 
the end of verse 6. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And we're going to see this idea again at uh, the end of the passage. Verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. And we also see it in the middle of the passage. Chapter 3, verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So this idea is woven throughout the passage. Hold fast, hold on to Jesus, keep believing, stay strong, stay firm, stay true to God until the end. But there's a question here, and that is, do we actually know God? If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end, whose house are we? Are we a part of Jesus' house? What's the danger? The danger is, verses 7 and following, we could be like the Israelites. They tested God in the wilderness. They hardened their hearts. God judged them. We see that in verses 7 through 11. The middle section of this passage, the reason that we are supposed to hold fast in Jesus to enter God's rest is not just because Jesus is faithful, but because God has joined us to Christ, and we have these examples of those who were not faithful, and what happened to them? What happened to them? Verse 12, or verses 7 through 11, what happened to them was a hardening of their hearts. We talked about this in Sunday school, right? Someone hears the word, knows what it says, has no excuse, and says, I don't care about it, I'm going to do this other thing instead. We're like, yeah, of course, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Israelites hardened their hearts. I'm not an Israelite. I'm not Pharaoh. I, that's not me. The first verse of the section that Paul read for us. Take care, brethren, there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. We talked about this idea of these warning passages we see it in chapter 2. We see it here in chapter 3. It's going to come up again in chapter 6, chapter 10. These idea of the warning passages, why does God give these severe warnings to people who've said they follow Him? Because there is a danger of having an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, if you're a Christian, that falling away is not permanent or else you were not a Christian. But it is a real possibility that there could be a period of time in your life in which you know the truth and you refuse to follow it and you fall away from God and if you do not repent of that, your very soul is in jeopardy. And so these severe warnings are designed to motivate us to examine our hearts, not so that we're constantly questioning whether we have believed, but so that we are constantly striving to persist in that belief by God's grace and by the means that He has provided. What is one of the means that God has provided to help us persevere in faith? Verse 13, Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful, right? There's abundant examples of this. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. God does. Sometimes we're blind to it. 
or the passage in James, right, where it talks about how temptation works. We chase after it. We see the bait. We ignore the hook. We see the what thing that we want. We ignore the trap. We chase after sin. The end of all these things is death. Sin works because it's deceitful, and it works in us because we give in to its deceitfulness. We are willingly deceived. There's a paradox here, which is, is someone responsible when they sin? Yes. If they get in the habit of sinning long enough, it is it almost become automatic and second nature and, you know, I don't believe that we have an unconscious, but people will say, well, I didn't, I didn't even think about that when I did it, right? If you sin often enough and long enough and repeatedly enough, it'll just sort of happen. You'll be like, how did that happen? How did I get from here to here? Because you just sort of worn that pathway down so many times in your heart that it just happens that way. What's supposed to protect us from that? You're going down this path, and there's someone there who says, Stop! Don't go that way! If you, um, like in wintertime, or if you uh, go camping at some of the state campgrounds, there's paths that people feet and bikes and whatever else has worn, you know, worn away the weeds, worn away the grasses, little paths through the forest and along the beach and whatever else. If there was someone standing there yelling, stop, don't go this way, would there be an opportunity for that pathway to get worn into the ground? No. Because people wouldn't go that way because someone's standing there saying, don't go this way. That's your job. That's my job in the context of the church. Come alongside each other warn each other while it is still called today so that we don't wear those patterns in our hearts of sin and become deceived and fall away from God. And yes, if a person falls away from God, it's their fault. But also, if a person falls away from God, it's our fault if we don't fulfill the responsibility that this, this passage lays out for us to warn them, to come alongside them, to encourage them. Now, when it says encourage, it doesn't necessarily mean that every time you're yelling, stop, don't do that. Sometimes it's coming, and often maybe it should start with a spirit of asking questions. Hey, I noticed that, uh, I noticed that you were sleeping in church today. Were you just really tired, or do you hate Jesus? Maybe not that question. Um, I'm, I'm just kidding. When, you were, when you're asking the question seriously, it would be something like this. Hey, you seem discouraged lately. What's going on? Or the thing that I try to do if you haven't been in church, it's not, I don't call you assuming you haven't been in church because you don't want to be here, right? I call you saying, hey, what's going on? Were you sick? Or is there something we can pray about? Or, you know, whatever else. And that's the attitude that we ought to have with people when I would um, follow up on, like, attendance things for inner city when I was working there sometimes people got this like uncomfortable vibe like I thought that they were terrible people because I was calling them no if if we care about each other I was doing it because it was my job but we ought to do this sort of organically ought to just happen in the context of our church we don't see someone at church let's call them up and say hey notice that you weren't at church everything okay can I pray with you about something can I encourage you do we you know it might be as simple as, I was sick. Okay, no big deal. But at some point, 
and I'm not saying for any of you, but I've seen it in churches before, somebody misses a whole series of Sundays at church and Wednesdays at church, and it's not because they're sick, it's because there's something else going on, but because we didn't start out asking at the beginning, the longer it goes, the more awkward we feel about asking, and so we don't ever actually deal with it, and then all of a sudden this huge thing blows up, and someone's life is falling apart, and there's chaos, and there's damage to the testimony of the church and their testimony for Christ, that not in every case, because sometimes sin is deceitful and we are stubborn and we can't always keep people from going down the wrong path. But if we had just started here and asked simple questions and encouraged people and been humble about it because we recognize our hearts are deceitful too, sin is deceitful in us as well, Galatians 6, the attitude is come along inside in a spirit of humbleness and gentleness, recognizing you yourself can be tempted, right? But when we don't start it here, the more time goes on, the less willing we are to do it, and the more opportunity there is for that path of sinfulness to be worn down in our hearts and us to fall away from the living God. And then again, verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So it's not enough just to start out following Christ over here and you're like, yeah, I've been a Christian for a year, two years, three years, four years. I'm good. I don't have to worry about all that anymore. This is a lifelong process. The final test of whether you truly and actually know God is not if I prayed a prayer three years ago. It's do I believe in Jesus now and do I finish well? Not in a deathbed confession, last rite sort of way. It's not. There are rare examples of people who didn't follow God their whole lives and then they trust in Jesus at the very end of their life. That certainly can happen. But we ought not count on that as being the normal pattern. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you keep believing in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus until the end? That's the ongoing test of our relationship with God. And the author highlights this point for us because we might say, oh, the Israelites, we're not the Israelites. And then he says in 12 to 14, take care there's not an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And then there's this fascinating reminder here at the end of chapter 3. Who provoked him? It wasn't the Egyptians, right? It was God's own people that he had called out of Egypt to be his people that were the ones who were sinning and falling away and showing unbelief. And so it's not a guarantee for us that we come to church and we sit in the pew and we smile at each other and we're here. That is not the guarantee of our salvation. Like we were talking about in Sunday school with Matthew 13, the test doesn't come until much later, when the wheat and the tares are gathered in, when the fish are sorted out in the parables that Jesus told in Matthew 13. The test comes much later, and it is completely possible for us to go through external motions, and then for Jesus to say to us, like it says in Matthew 7, I never knew you. It doesn't matter that you did miracles or spoke my word or all of these sorts of things, because... If you are people characterized by lawlessness, 
which is what Matthew 7 says to those Jesus says, I never knew you. Your participation in good church activity is not sufficient. This is a rebuke for us, right? We, for those of us who have grown up in Christian homes, it's so easy for us to say, if I do the Christian things, it doesn't matter what I think, it doesn't matter what thoughts go through my mind and heart, it doesn't matter if I sin a little bit here and there, because I'm doing all the good Christian things, right? I'm reading my Bible, I pray, there's the really big things I don't do that are bad. But it's not enough just to think, I'm doing all this stuff, memorizing my verse for Sunday school, bringing my Bible to church, listening to the sermon, singing the songs, whatever. It's not enough just to say that if my life secretly and inwardly and deep down in my heart is characterized by sin and unbelief. Now, in an ideal world, there would be both the external things, reading your Bible and prayer and and all those sorts of things, participation in church, and a life of obedience to Christ instead of slavery to sin. But it's theoretically possible, like we were talking about in Sunday school, for someone to hear God's Word on a Sunday, meditate it throughout the week, and they may not be the person that you um, are uh, would hold up as the example of the most godly person you've ever met, but they are a genuine believer. Or you might have someone who, uh, on the other side, they are sometimes sinning, but they're doing all these things over here. Ideally, there would be both. There would be growing in both and all those sorts of things, but... The danger is that we would think we're connected with church, we've prayed a prayer, we've been baptized, whatever it might be, so we're right with God from that point forward without any work on our part. And that's not what this passage is saying. Day after day, encourage one another. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. So God has joined you to Christ... But he judges unbelief, so don't harden your heart and encourage one another day after day. God has joined you to Christ, and in connection with that, he offers rest. We see this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. What is the obstacle to that rest? Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. What is the obstacle to entering the rest that God has promised? It is unbelief. It's not enough just to hear God's word. Verse 2, we have had good news, just as they did. The word did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. This is the missing ingredient. This is the thing that distinguishes us from demons and from false professions, and from whatever else, the thing that distinguishes it is, not just have I heard God's word, not just do I intellectually grasp that it is true, but do I actually have faith? And how do I know if if I have faith? It's not just that I really, really, with all my heart, want it to be true. Just sort of this blind eagerness about something, right? It leads to change in the way that we live. 
And this is why it's so dangerous that there are some people who have said repentance is merely an intellectual exercise because if it was merely an intellectual change, I thought this way, now I think this way, every one of the demons and every person who's rejected God throughout history would be in heaven, at least if they'd heard a little bit of scriptural truth. And so the person that says, well, if you just change your mind and you think the right things about God, it's not that abstract. It's supposed to affect the entirety of who we are, not just our thinking, but our wanting and our doing and all of who we are. So the obstacle to entering into God's rest is unbelief. Unbelief leads to God's judgment. I swore they will not enter my rest. That rest is certain. God rested on the seventh day from all His works. Verse 5, the, pro- the judgment against certain ones is also certain. They shall not enter my rest. So what's the admonition? Verse 7, He again fixes a certain day today. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Well, if God's Word is certain that God has rest, and if God's Word is certain that certain people are not going to enter into rest, then why does He make this point today, don't harden your hearts? Because while you and I are yet alive, there is opportunity for repentance. And the author of Hebrews keeps hammering this home because he doesn't want you and I to be caught up in the deceitfulness of sin and fail to enter God's rest. He goes back to the Old Testament. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What was the whole point of the Sabbath? By the time it came to the Gospels, people had misunderstood what the Sabbath was about. The Sabbath was about following all the rules about not working. That's their idea about it, right? Jesus said no. The point of it was not that. The point of it was to look forward to this glorious reality in which all our work is done, the hard labor of going through life and all of those sorts of things, and we enjoy God's presence forever. God finished creation, and He rested. God established the week as a pattern for what it was supposed to look like, looking forward to that rest. We're not bound by the law like the Israelites were to observe it on a particular day. Every time we have opportunity for rest during the week, it's supposed to look back to God's resting after creation and look forward to that eternal rest with God. The imperfect symbol of the Sabbath in the Old Testament looking forward to the true reality of eternally being forever with God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God But we need to work toward that end. Be diligent to enter that rest. What's the main means that God uses here in this section to accomplish what He's talking about? The main means that God holds out here that helps us to enter His rest is verse 12, the Word of God is living and active and sharper. So this is a further development of what we were talking about a few moments ago, which is, if you see someone potentially struggling with sin, come alongside them. But what is it that you come alongside with them with? 
not self-help books, not Christian romance novels, not um, helpful blog posts as the final and most helpful authority about what God has said. What you come alongside them with is God's Word because God's Word has the power to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The idea is this idea of piercing to the inmost part of a person. Some people have taken this verse and said, well, this verse shows that you have a soul and a spirit and a body. I don't think that's the point of it, right? Because joints and marrow is not two different things. They're two different parts of the same thing, right? Aside from that, the point is, God's Word pierces the inmost part of our souls, judges the secret motivations of our heart, and so if we are going to be um, delivered from the deceitfulness of sin, if we are going to be diligent to enter God's rest, we need both the constant encouragement of fellow believers and the use of God's Word in that encouragement. Because God's Word is what's going to change us. We can say all the things that we want to say, and we are not going to persuade people's hearts and minds, but God's Word, through the work of the Holy Spirit, has the power to do it in a way that our own efforts will never succeed. And this is a sobering reality, verse 13. There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And so if I was summing up these three verses, I would say God's Word judges the secret unbelief of your heart. In the final days in Revelation, what happens? People see the glory of God and they go into rocks and caves and low places in the ground and they say, hide us from the ever-seen eyes of God and His judgment because they're aware of their sin. They would rather die and be buried and be hidden than to be exposed to God's glorious and righteous presence. You and I have the opportunity as we encounter God's Word to be judged by it before the great and terrible day of judgment so that we are not judged on the great and terrible day of judgment. And so when you pick up your Bible, when you listen to it on a Sunday or a Wednesday or a sermon on the radio or whatever other ways you encounter God's Word throughout the week, don't think of it as just a book. Don't just think of it as a catalog of facts that you store away. Think of it as a searchlight that is exposing the deepest, darkest secrets of your heart and calling on you to repent. Because if we think that we don't need to repent, we deceive ourselves, as John says, and say that we have no sin and call God a liar because all of us, at many points throughout our lives and perhaps at many points throughout the day, need to repent of a variety of things. And God's Word shows it to us and the regular encouragement of God's people calls it to our attention. And the fact that Jesus was faithful inspires, motivates, holds out the hope that we too can be faithful by God's grace which then leads us to perhaps the most important point of the passage, which is not just that Jesus was faithful and not just that God has made us partakers with Jesus and all these things we were just looking about in the, the main part of the passage, but this summary verse that we did not read, verses 14 through 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is the great hope in this ongoing struggle and this question of whether we will hold fast? It's the fact that Jesus has said that he'll help you. Why can he say that he'll help you? Number one, because he beat sin. Look at verse 14. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. What could the priests of the Old Testament not do? They could not pass through the heavens. They could not enter God's presence. But Jesus can, and he did, and he has done it on our behalf. Jesus beat sin, so there's hope for you. What else? Jesus sympathizes without excusing your sin. We usually do one or the other, right? We sympathize and we excuse sin, or we excuse sin and we don't sympathize. Jesus sympathizes, but he doesn't excuse their sin. He doesn't excuse our sin. It says he was tempted in every point, even as we are, yet without sin. Think about how hard that would be. How many times have you given in to sin? probably be easier to count the times that we've not given into sin, right? Jesus never once sinned. He never once yelled at his parents because he was angry about what he was having for supper. He never once complained about a co-worker that he didn't like. He never once fill in the blank. He always obeyed God. So going back to how I started the message, you want somebody to help you? You want the person who is further along than you and who has succeeded in the way that you hope to succeed. You don't want the guy who's never been promoted and everybody thinks is a joke at work to be the person that you model your career after. You want the person who's successful. And we could talk about human success and all those criteria and all that. That's not the main point of what I'm saying. The main point of what I'm saying is this. Jesus beats sin. He sympathizes without excusing your sin, and he will help you to beat sin. Why do I say that? Verse 16. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We might have this idea that God wants us to fail so that he can judge us, and that is not the picture that the Bible paints. God absolutely will judge sin, but he's not like hiding behind a trap door waiting for us to sin so he can spring out and say, I caught you right? That's sort of the attitude and the mindset of people today, right? Here's a group of people we don't like, so we're constantly watching so we can catch them in the act so that we can get them in trouble and advance our cause. And I mean, that basically sums up politics right now, right? Uh, let's find all the ways the other guys messed up so that we can look better. God's not like that. God will judge you if you sin. God doesn't want you to sin, but God offers help so that you don't have to sin. What does that help? Well, we've seen it earlier in the passage. It is, Jesus was faithful. And we see here at the end of the passage, Jesus has said he'll help you. We saw in the middle of the passage, God's united you with Christ and given you the encouragement of his people and the convicting power of his word. But bringing all those things together is, Jesus is there, faithful throughout his life. Jesus is there. He has beat sin. Jesus is there. 
And in our words of encouragement and our pointing people to God's Word, we point them to Jesus. So this gives us hope that we can beat sin. And it's not going to be an immediate thing. And it's not going to be an easy thing. And it's going to be a lifelong task. But you and I don't have to have the sort of defeatist attitude that says, well, you know what? This is just who I am. I'm a thief. I'm a drunk. I'm a homosexual. I'm an adulterer. I'm a liar. I'm a whatever. Because the Bible says such were some of you to the Corinthians whose lives were characterized by the sort of wickedness that we see all around us every day in our world. And it says this, such were some of you because Jesus has overcome those things and Jesus offers help and hope for you to overcome those things. And if you overcome those things, what does the Bible say happens? You will enter into God's presence. You will have finished your course. You will have kept the faith. You will, as this passage calls us to do, have held fast until the end. But, and this is where I think sometimes we go wrong, we think perseverance is all about human effort. Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing, but in me you will bear much fruit. And if bearing fruit is the test of true belief, you and I desperately need Jesus to bear that fruit. So hold fast in Jesus to enter God's rest. Beware the dangers of unbelief. Repent while it's still called today, while there's still opportunity. And watch out for the souls of those around you. Because God wants to help you. Jesus has been faithful, and God has provided the means of what we need to succeed in what He wants us to be and do. Let's pray. God, by your grace, may we hold fast in Jesus. May we enter into that rest that you have prepared from the beginning of the world. Lord, I pray for every one of us here today that we would not fall away from you, that we would not deny you, that we would not love sin. Lord, our hearts love sin so much. even knowing what it will do, even knowing that it doesn't satisfy, even knowing the terrible consequences that it brings, we love sin and we chase after sin, and a passage like this is designed to shock us out of that complacency, to put a, a block in the road so that we slam on our brakes and we stop going that way and we say, how can I do this great evil and sin against my God? Lord, help us to use the means that you have provided for us. Help us to be the means that you have provided for others. And most importantly, help us to do this in Jesus' strength, not our own, because in ourselves we fail and we fall and we falter. But in you we can have victory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.